Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who has never bothered any of his weaker neighbors or caused them any harm whatsoever. Ah, <laughs> oh, Pat, I am the Adam Glass, and I love it when you go a deep cut from one of the special features as as your reference to the I, That's what I am week. here for. That's the only thing those things are ever useful for, is just to make the intro to this incomprehensible. <laughs> it's great. It's great. I love it. Thank you so much for that. And it's true. I don't even know my neighbor's names. <laughs> well, at least it's accurate on your part. At least you're not a man who wants to undo all of European civilization. <laughs> Before we get started this week, I want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you get access to a bonus episode. It's a non-criterion film. Uh, you, of course, get access to all of the previous bonus episodes. You get only Over the most too. recent one. It's a limited time offer. <laughs> Buy now. Right. Two, $2 a month, we'll give you back access. One dollar, <laughs> no. God, what kind of- One dollar a month, you get access to the current one and all the- It's uh, it's monthly. Um we also you do a poll over there, so you get to vote on what movie we're going to watch. A poll, you answer the poll. I put I put together a poll. You vote on the poll if you if you want to utilize your dollar in that manner. I mean, you can also um, do a poll, but it will be unrelated to the decisions made in the Patreon. Right, right. That's fair. Unless you suggest a poll to right. us, in which case I will probably take it uh, and make it because that's usually what happens. Right. We we no, really want you to do most happens, of the mental work for us, if way. possible. Yeah. No, but supporters over there can suggest movies for us to watch. We'll put together a list, and if it's voted for, we'll uh, we'll end up watching it. And and more often than not, if someone suggests a movie for us to watch, we end up inviting that person onto that episode. So too. if you want to be on an uh, episode, there's a trick. Yeah, there you go. Uh, recently, uh, one of our supporters, Adam Speakerman, suggested we watch Buster Keaton movies, and we had a lot of fun with him on an episode dedicated to a, a couple of those, though actually he and I ended up watching four of them. <laughs> yeah, I felt left Pat, behind, Pat, we only honestly. got to watch two. I a little, I and a and he, you were a little blindsided. You had other things going on that week. Otherwise, I would have suggested that you watch all four as well. And I wasn't really planning on watching all four when I sat down to watch the first two. But I ended up dedicating. I mean, they the are very, very enjoyable. So they are worth yeah, watching they're anyway. They're fun movies. But yeah, that was a fun episode, and we we're very happy to have Adam as the guest there. Uh, if you want in on that sort of thing, just a dollar a month gets you access to those episodes, gets you access to the back catalog, and gets you our ear. If you want to, but not whisper. the physical object. You get the sort of yeah. We're not going to send you our ear. That I mean, that is a <laughs> Patreon tier. Um, it's higher than the <laughs> random stuff from my house tier. That's the dollar a month tier for oh, a little extra ear tier. five dollars a month. Sorry, <laughs> yes, the the ear tier. <laughs> it's a dollar a month. It's highly recommended. <laughs> yeah, for a little extra dollar, uh, for a little extra each month, uh, five dollars a month. We like to thank those people on air, um, which are really expertly formatted because. Uh, 
it, it makes us look reasonable to have a midpoint between the one dollar and the ten point dollar, even though no one's uh, no one's doing the. $5 I mean, at right some point, now. everybody realized that the ten dollar tier is a much better value than the five dollar tier because yeah. you get a physical yeah. object out of it. Yeah, and the ten dollar tier is really great, and I'm really happy with it. And I'm glad that people are 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 supporting us at that level, and I'm glad people are, are choosing to go for that. Um, the ten dollar is something that's really special. I really love. Uh, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently, and I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized note, uh, and mail that off. Though this past month, I will admit, everybody's everybody's notes were variations on the same theme this past month because it was what was on my mind. Right. When I well, yeah. I mean, well, I figure they're all going. I assumed. Yeah. I don't. I don't get copies of these because I can't afford yeah. our ten dollar tier, um, <laughs> and so. But I always assume that the letters are are pretty much like what's in the sort of zeitgeist around Adam. So yeah, yeah, yeah. My my personal zeitgeist. Um, I don't I don't think it qualifies as a zeitgeist if it's just. Well, I me, was but. I said the zeitgeist around because like yeah, zeitgeist I always have felt is a bit of a is again also a bit of a misnomer because like there's more than one zeitgeist. Like let's be clear here. That's like, fair. That's fair. It's it's very like ethnocentric, I think. In most people's yeah. perspective, ah, oh, the the zeitgeist. Well, I mean, maybe that's not what people yeah. are talking about somewhere else. That's fine. At that ten dollar a month and above, we also like to thank those people on air. So thank you so much to Michael McGrath, Christopher Otto, Charlie Mueller, Patrick Yako, Jonathan Hape, Jason Westhaver, and Adam Speakerman for your ten dollar and above supports. Pat, this week we are talking about a. Uh, a very interesting film in visual effects history. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a uh, a kids movie. Um, um, yeah, yeah. I feel like I want to teach my kids about brownface. <laughs> very few characters are actually in brownface. All right, all right. All right that's fair. Ideological brownface, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I sure, mean, that's, I guess. That's yeah, that's but, true. I guess. Yeah. But actual makeup, no. Uh, anyway. All right, I feel like I feel like we're 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 really like <laughs> we're picking it. S- we're splitting, splitting hairs here because like yeah, I, yeah. Well, we didn't we didn't make the white guy pretending to be this guy. Okay. wear brown face, but you know. Didn't I do want to get into actually you know saying the name of the movie, but before we before we get to that, I want to point out that one of the Criterion essays attached to this. Uh, is dedicated on positioning this movie as uh, a commentary on colonialism. Uh, I, yeah, and, I, mean, I guess it could be like a commentary in that sense where you're like, I'm going to show. It's like when it's like people who make a an ill ill informed decision to make a like um a like a comedy sketch about blackface and then do blackface in it and then be like. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, yeah. that was just uh I was trying to make a I was trying to make a social commentary. And then people are like, But you still did blackface, dude. And then uh yeah, yeah I suppose. They make they make some, some decent some decent and interesting arguments come up and some decent and interesting things about this movie beyond that and beyond what's in the essay we'll end up talking about, but we should introduce yeah. the movie. It is The Thief of Baghdad from nineteen forty. Uh, it is an early Technicolor film. It is the first movie to use chroma key blue screening technology, which was developed for this movie. 
in order to make a horse fly. Which is cool. I mean, it, that's all it very is, cool. It is pretty cool. I mean, uh, it was it fun is, to see the, the special effects. Yeah. Yeah. It is produced by Alexander Korda uh, and directed by just a rotating selection of people. Yep. Uh, Ludwig Berger was hired to direct, and there were some some butting of heads between him and Alexander Korda. Uh, but then on top of everything else, they started filming this in 1939, and Britain entered the war, and they saw that uh, the writing on the wall. So before Britain entered the war, uh, Corda hired Michael Powell, hired Tim Whelan, uh, hired William Cameron Menzies, and uh, I think both of his brothers, Vincent and Zoltan, both <laughs> both also stepped in. And they had... They had at least four units uh, filming to try and get this movie done before Britain entered the war. Right. And then Britain entered the war, and they hadn't finished yet. So um, an interesting thing that happened here is, one, they went on a hiatus when Britain entered the war, and they made um, Corda and Powell were hired by the British government to make a movie called The Lion Has Wings, a British propaganda film that Pat made reference to uh, in the introduction because it is also on the DVD here, and we'll end up talking a little bit about it, I'm sure. Um, but the other thing that happened was that they moved production to the U.S., and U.S. production, you can tell what scenes of this movie were filmed in the U.S., Versus what weren't, mm. because the women's tops are buttoned all the way up to their necks on the ones filmed in the U.S. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Like I was like, yeah, I, I, it is interesting that you tell me that because that was actually a thing I did notice, yeah. and I was like, what is going yes. on here with the costuming? Like this is yeah. all over the map. Yeah, it changes like that because <laughs> they were filming in the U.S. and no cleavage could be shown. Good old America. Good old America. Yeah, we do. We could. We do great work. Yeah. Um, I think the thing I admire most is how much no one seemed to care about the genie's skull cap looking like garbage. <laughs> That's what I admire most about this film. There's a lot of great special effect work, and then I have a movie with a yeah. lot of really great special effect work, and be someone like, ah, fucking good enough, fine. I guess. Roll it. Like it's all that like bunchy and stuff at the back and stuff. And it's like, did they not ask yeah. this guy to just shave his head first of all? But second of all, it's like the paint color changes between the two. I'm like, what's happening here? You guys spent how much money on like a, a special effects blockbuster? And you're like, yeah, I mean, sure, this is a huge special effect part of the film, but uh, really, give a shit what he looks like. <laughs> uh Actually, I will say the this makeup is... work in this film is really weird. I'm like, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this film, but like the white yeah. guys are crazy fucking white, like blowout white, like almost about to like cause a lens flare actually. white. It's very yeah. weird. Uh, it's the color balance since we actually have uh, Cebu starring in this, um, which is an interesting aspect of this movie. Was uh, this is fairly popular from my reading with uh with african americans in the u.s because it has a uh brown skin leading man yeah. well leading man well protagonist uh titular yeah. character less leading man 
Which is one interesting aspect of this movie because it is more or less a remake of the 1924 film of the same name. Uh, but in that movie, um, the main character, the th- thief of Baghdad, was also the prince, right? Right. And in that movie, that movie, much like Aladdin, right? Which the cartoon Aladdin, the Disney cartoon Aladdin, which is a uh, derivative of both of those films, right? Um, in that movie, the thief becomes a prince. Well, um, right. Whereas it, in this movie, you know. This movie does suffer from not, kind of to a certain extent, does suffer from not doing that because it makes the storytelling very complicated. Yeah, but at the same time, it allows us to feature Cebu. Absolutely. No, well, I'm okay. Yeah. Let's let's be clear here. Right. You could still feature Cebu without doing that. You just have to be (laughs) not a racist asshole. Let's, (laughs) Let's be clear. It was always possible. As a... As a 15-year-old child, and, and he even looks younger than 15 here. He is 15, 16 when this is filming. I, he, he couldn't have been... They couldn't have combined those two characters in the same No, way. no, no. Like, I understand that. But what I, love what story I, I is pretty more, chaste to begin with, but at the same time. I, I meant right. more in a metaphorical yeah. sense. You, you could have right, a... Right. You, you could change a lot of things about this movie to just make it a Cebu feature. But for some reason, they keep that Thief of Baghdad... Uh, they keep the print uh, the print storyline in well in a pretty straightforward manner right right and, and what my so. issue is i mean like i i want to complain about some things because there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about oh, that yeah. are good i i the my biggest issue with this film is that it is it is it it, it the storytelling it it, it is complicated it yeah. like for a child to follow it would be kind of wild uh, right. It's we have main characters who are like gone for huge chunks of time. Like we just switch main characters. The the story is overly complicated. It just our titular is. character spends a third of the film as a dog. Yes. Um. I and it's all neat. Like I mean, if you yeah. and it's and the problem comes from the fact that we've talked about this before. Movie storytelling and storytelling storytelling are not the same thing. The things you right, can do in right, a work right. of written fiction far exceed what you can show on screen and have people understand what the hell is going on. Right. And this probably would work a lot better as written fiction. Right. In, in even the manner that it is presented right. here. Like, obviously, it's pulling from a different a bunch of different right. Arabian Nights tales. Right. So it's a, a synthesis of that right. to begin with. But, yeah. but I feel like in their desire to pull from those tales, they were to a certain extent trying to leave that literary feel in it. Yeah. And that gets confusing sometimes. Not yeah. bad, just confusing. Uh combine that with the fact that the result of trying to get so much in is that the movie kind of moves at a breakneck pace. Yeah. Eighty percent of the time you're like, holy shit guys, calm down. Take a breath. <laughs> like Which again is why I describe this as a kid's adventure film. Like right. know, even to that extent, maybe a kid's not going to understand completely what's going on, but it's a lot of fun visuals. Absolutely. And, and I and I'm sure my kids watched the last distracted by for thirty, yeah. forty minutes of it, and they were pretty right, engrossed right. with it. Uh it holds up in terms of like it, it it's always fascinating to me that the that that special effects that like I would go, Well, this is very good, but this is still very old, kids don't give two shits about yeah my kids are like this is great yeah, the f- we're here the fact that sometimes the flying horse has a weird blue glow around right. it 
It's magic, I whatever. I don't care about yeah. that. It's a magic horse. It's fine. Like, of course yeah, it's they were really fascinated bit. by yeah. it, especially like when the when he shoots the horse and it falls apart. My like Yeah. Uh, my Dylan was my youngest son was like really like wow. <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, it's great. Pretty cool effect. Yeah. It's really good. It is a really cool effect. Um Speaking of the Aladdin connection and Cebu, uh, I, I I do have to pause for a second to absorb the fact that the character becomes Abu, the monkey, in Aladdin. And that's not some terrible shit. Well, right? let's not forget <laughs> just how super racist uh, Disney is, kind of throughout its history. But... Uh, well, that, I mean, that's the interesting thing, right? Is like there's a lot, there's a lot being said by the fact that yeah. Abu is a monkey, beginning to end, straight up. There's right. a, just a, there's a right. lot of subtext in that that are that borders on just being text. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, the essay in making the, a, a defense of this movie as a commentary on colonialism, and I. I hesitate to say anti-colonial as I as I describe it. Like I'm this, really wondering where this manner. is going. Um, but but among the things the essay talks about, and the essay is by, uh, um, there are actually two essays associated with this movie. This one's by Andrew Moore. Um, and Andrew Moore's essay uh, talks about how in making in the changes from the 1924 version. This becomes a story about a king who rejects his advisors in order to listen more to his people, okay. which uh, more posits as an endorsement of a uh, democratic monarchy, um, a la Britain. Um, a notorious, uh, a democratic no- monarchy notorious for listening to its subjects and, and caring about people in other countries. <laughs> Go on. Right, right. Um, another thing it points out about production, which I found fascinating, um, because we've talked about movies that the court has produced before, and among them were some of the Paul Robeson work. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sanders of the River was a court of production. So the genie in the first editions of the draft, um, Rex Ingram ends up playing him. But in the earliest editions, he is greets being freed with a freedom song. Uh-huh. And at one point, a synopsis of the film referred to the character as Robeson Jin, uh, suggesting that whoever wrote that was thinking of Paul Robeson to play the character when they when they did it. Um the character as it exists, the genie as it exists, still has allusions to and commentary on slavery, uh-huh. I think, uh, even if it's not as overt as those early drafts suggested it should be. Um, and we do have uh, Rex Ingram playing a character who is freed, um, is the most powerful being in the movie. <laughs> Um, right, and and then is well, I mean, with the exception by... of, of the of the gods that uh, <laughs> I suppose needs yes. later, but yeah, yeah, that is fair. That is fair. Um, he he does meet God. <laughs> I, 
momentarily forgot about that bit. Uh, and then, um, but he is re-enslaved by, and this is reading deeper than any, even Moore's essay read it. Um, the idea that the jinn is then re-enslaved by Sabu, who is himself a downtrodden character in the social hierarchy, right? Uh, and the idea of re-enslavement in colonial uh, hierarchies, mm-hmm. I think, is and and the the way that rolls downhill and people people in the lowest rung getting a little bit of power and then exercising that power against people lower than them. Right. Um, is is interesting, but obviously not something this movie really wants to explore right. at all. See, I, I the thing I take it, nothing problem. There's nothing wrong with this sort of analysis, adding in ropes and stuff like that. I think that's all very reasonable, yeah. um, and it's an interesting thing to talk about. I think it's probably more of a that doesn't necessarily have a an inherently liberatory element to it because right. also if right. that's the most famous which, which, like black guy you I, know again is. Right, is again why I didn't want to call this anti-colonial. Right, right. right? It's What not. I would argue um, is that what we're actually probably dealing with, and this is a very like stretch argument because I don't know enough about the situation, I would guess that the genie, the concept of genies in a bottle per se is a commentary in and of itself on bondage and the yes. nature of bondage and what it means in, in a... In a, in a storytelling framework that's trying to sort of reckon with that concept, right? Um, yeah. I, it, you, I mean, it would require far more research than I'm ever going to give because this is right. not my field of study right. or anything. But I would, right. I would imagine that we probably – an analysis of literature that includes ge- genies being enslaved probably yeah. could be tied very closely to historical events – in the societies that were telling those stories and, and what they were trying to talk about. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I guarantee you there are papers that have been written about it. I don't know what they are. I'm not going Almost to certainly. find them. I have other academic work that is my actual job. Yeah. No yeah. one will pay me to look into this. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's just not going to happen. But I'm going to go on right. and let me say it probably exists because you can't have such a stark feature of narrative storytelling and not have it mean anything. Yes. Um, I'd also say that the live action remake of Aladdin makes the influence of the Jinn here on their genie a little more overt with with Will Smith's portrayal. Right. I think that it draws it draws a little more a little more from this movie than uh than the cartoon version. Right. Did, Make certainly. it well giving the genie a very yeah, you can definitely Will Smith's and not just because it's played by right, a, but Will Smith's character, American guy, right? He's but, closer to this than it does to Robin Williams' character in a lot of right, ways, right. It, it, especially which like the sort of like as a lifestyle genie, like like one who had <laughs> right? like Robin Williams' genie is quite funny, but has no real non-existence or no existence outside of his interaction with Aladdin, right? Like, right. Right. He's he's wholly exists in that narrative in that way, whereas this genie and Will Smith's genie, which I have seen that movie, um, both of them have like their sort of 
aspirations that extend beyond just liberation, but also like they got plans. You know what I mean? Like they've got right, things. Right, right. They uh, appear to have an existence that exists solely out, wholly outside of right Aladdin. Or in this case, and, and that uh, does exist it, in the cartoon version. It just maybe isn't played as. I I I, I mean right? because I, uh, because the cartoon version is really a vehicle for Robin Williams to be Robin Williams. Exactly, right? and and that's so, what I'm saying. They they play different characters. That's all. All of that to say, just one more check mark on what Aladdin Disney's Aladdin owes to this movie. Obviously, Jafar also something that uh, right that Disney, yeah Conrad Conrad Veet's portrayal of Jafar is. Pretty much, it's pretty much Disney's portrayal. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, that's <laughs> right? very clearly cribbed. Character between... design's a little bit different, but it's not that much. Different. I mean, the the, the um, Disney one is just more. Basically, right, it's this, right. but more because it's yeah. a cartoon. You can do more. Yeah. Now, now Jafar as an evil visor is also uh, from, you know, that's another thing that they both inherit from the the tales, um, a thousand one nights, um. And historical. Uh, the uh, There was a real historical king whose name I can't remember um, who had an advisor named Jafar. We're talking like 800 AD. Um, a, uh, a leader, um, Middle Eastern king, who had Jafar and ended up beheading Jafar, and that maybe is the... Right. The all of it historically. Right. <laughs> like, what happened and why. <laughs> um I don't know, uh, but I do know that aspect of it. So, so yeah, you know, it's the stories themselves were always a synthesis of reality and fiction and a recontextualizing of the stories of different cultures. Like the, the base stories of A Thousand One Arabian Nights come from all over Asia. From the Middle East into into India, at least. Um, and to that extent, maybe having Sabu, an Indian actor, uh, play in this is a realistic thing. More realistic than all of the white actors in it, certainly. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> you never... I mean, that, that's always a thing, right? Like, cause I, What I always think about with that is it's, like, it's really hard to decide whether something is accidental or purposeful yeah. right I, that strikes me as more of an accidental thing in the sense that like Corda and Sabu had had worked together right exactly well. that's like that so, feels like a Robeson like, thing to me where it's like well this is a guy I know he's probably perfectly suited for this like kind of thing. um yes. uh my my thought process what I did find interesting is I, I you know I don't know really anything about a thousand one nights or any of that sort of stuff <clears throat> just not ever something i've ever read or been really that interested in uh personally but uh what i did find interesting is just how much we interacted with the indian subcontinent in this film yeah in, in the sense that we we do find ourselves interacting with what like iconography that is very distinctly Indian, right? A lot, which right. is interesting because that's not a thing that I've come to expect about films, specifically about like um you know the Middle East or something like that. And that's, it's just interesting. It's just an interesting thing that happens a lot in this movie. And I was like, oh wow, okay. I don't know what this is saying, but 
it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, like, like when Kali shows up. Yeah. Uh, like, that was, uh, that was a little weird. Pulled me out. A well, and I, that's, a, and, that, and again, I don't know enough to know, like, to make definitive statements, and I hesitate to make anything remotely definitive, um, for this film, but like, yeah. There's uh, there's a lot of what what I have always understood to be Indian iconography and yeah, Kali's a really specific intense example, but it's not the first time in this film that that sort of iconography shows up, which is really right interesting, right, right, yeah. And it's a that that whole thing's use because it's it's a mechanical woman. And it's a mechanical sex bot in this yeah. children's adventure ba- movie. Basically, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then it murders the king. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and it's, like it's, the it's, the goddess that he gets the gem from is very clearly Indian yes. iconography, at least is my understanding of it. Um, it's, it's it's very clearly yeah. Hindu iconography. Like as far as I, I don't know, maybe that iconography also shows up. In the Middle East, probably right, maybe, but I don't know. I don't. I don't know enough about exactly, about which is why I hesitate to make definitive statements. Say, right, right. Stick so, to my lane. But in terms it is. Of what I it know. is. In any case, all of this together amounts to a vague orientalizing of this story that treats wide geographical areas as interchangeable right to... and that's the concern right is it is it right <laughs> and then we get into a discussion that is always a little bit fraught which is is it an intentional choice to talk about the interplay of these different cultures with each other throughout history or is it come from a place where you're like well it doesn't fucking matter well, I, I, I think there is a third choice there, is that the powers that be here, Corda in particular, I would think, this is really his production, um, maybe view this as educational to a certain extent. Not, not necessarily saying that Corda thinks he's being accurate to the culture, but that he's being respected to the culture by teaching British people about these areas. It's, yeah, right? maybe. Yeah. I think I think that is a and again, I, I don't want to read too much into Cortis motivations here and Moore's essay does plenty of that in a different realm. Right. <laughs> that I don't I don't know if really really speak true to life either. One of the things that I I think is also kind of is that when you talk about these areas that are being depicted you're actually also talking about currently at that time British territories, right? Which right. has a and that's, whole another that's element another to aspect it. of it, and that's another aspect of it that I feel like Corda thinks he's doing everyone a favor by romanticizing, I, right? These it's areas, a, it, it does right. remind me of other films we've seen in the past. I can't name them specifically, but I feel like what right. was that one that was like? There was that film where they go to India, and then it's um. Ah, crap. I don't remember. We've watched too many movies. I mean, what, what comes to mind for me, and maybe this is what you're thinking about, is Renoir's The River. Yes, that is what I'm where thinking about. Where yeah. it's about yeah. the British family living in India, right. 
and they ended up having the the Diwali. I think it's the Diwali. Festival. Yeah, I think maybe so, it's not yeah. Diwali. It's it's where they throw the die at one right. another. Is the festival at the end of the movie? Um, and that's I don't think that's Diwali. Now I, I think I, again, I I, this think is not a thing I know very much about. Um, so, but yeah, um, but yeah, so it's uh, it's right. <laughs> well, it reminds me of that in that same way of like. We need to show people on the mainland a, a a positive view of the provinces. Right. We have these territories, and we want, especially as we head into this this time of 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 strife, we need right. the British mainland committed to the idea that we that these people are important at least in terms of keeping them our colonial subjects yeah you know what i mean and like that... there's a you get like the, the the politics of colonization are a little hard to process that way because like there's that like sort of paternal element to it where it's like well we we have an obligation to protect these people who we right. have oppressed <laughs> and that's that's where i think the lion has wings pairing on this DVD gets very interesting to yeah. me. And obviously there are movies made by the same people at the exact same time. Production paused on right. this movie and they made The Lion Has Wings. So there's that that's reason enough for it to be on the DVD. Right. But The Lion Has Wings in its introduction is very, very whitewashing of British history. Oh, yeah. No, it's like 800 years of peaceful people. Never bothered anybody. the only time we enter war now is to protect the continent from from dictators popping up. Right. Uh, And again, the the equation of of Hitler and World War One era Germany is only really interesting here for the fact that it was so early that that (laughs) that sort of thing was happening. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Today, it it makes sense today because of the myopia, myopia of history uh, that that everyone equates Nazi um, motivations as the same motivations of World War One. But but to see Britain on the cusp of World War Two, uh, right. using that well, same, and, and it's important. I mean, you do see that occasionally but, in literature because yeah. it it allows you to leverage the the. Right, right. That war to like prove you ought to be involved in this one too, but and, like, yeah, it is interesting. And of course, to see. the the we did it before and we can do it again is uh, you know yeah. common enough phraseology from the time too, right? Um, but um, but yeah, the movie, the lion has wings. Also, in that introductory portion, formats Britain as really having no. Imperial ambition. Oh at yeah, all, no. Ever Britain's never history. hardly ever gotten right? off the island. Frankly, the, right. it, it portrays right. Britain as this like Mister Magoo esque figure who just like haphazardly like protects the world while not really wanting to do anything. It's right. it's a right. it is a wild interpretation of British history. It is kind right. of amazing because it's like at a time. Oh, go ahead. At a time when the Imperial Project is certainly different than it had been, but still in full swing. Right, exactly, so. absolutely. I mean, like, oh, you know, yeah, this is prior to the collapse of a lot of that stuff. This is, you know, it's it, it's just, 
it's really fascinating because it really like the sentences the person the narrator says are frankly gobsmacking. They are like yes. I honestly recommend I would recommend to literally anybody just watch the first 10 minutes of this movie. Right. Just to hear, and you really that's all you need. Right. To watch. No, the rest I watched of it the whole is thing. Just you don't need to watch the rest of this it's, movie. It's In fact, right? in fact, even the first 10 minutes the man repeats himself like 12 times. <laughs> right, right. Um but like it's it is it is startling. Like it is I, I mean it's well and, and and what's smart startling for us is because it gives us what's actually really fascinating for me is that it gives you an outside perspective on what like other countries that are like kind of hip to our behavior as Americans must watch like Thanksgiving documentaries like right where they're right. like what right. the fuck are these people talking about <laughs> or you know any Thanksgiving is a good example it's what's on my mind right now but like any right. any American like TV documentary that's like talking about like well basically anything about any of our founding fathers or something that like talk about freedom or something right. like right. do they not realize they had slaves are they unaware right. Right. that this was happening right right and you know to to the credit of the project I guess. Um, the Lion Has Wings was specifically produced at the behest of Corda's close personal friend, Winston Churchill. Uh, well, that makes everything with the better. Intent, <laughs> with the intent on convincing the British government that film propaganda, uh, that narrative film as propaganda, was a thing that was worth investing in. And certainly Michael Powell's career... Well, I mean, it uh, turns out to, yes, that is from, a worthwhile thing to invest from, your time in. Yes, but from like, convincing from convincing them of that, I, I guess is where Pow's career really, you know, and Pow. To that end, you know, I mean, there's a chance that if the lion has wings, didn't exist, then the red shoes never would have existed, and and maybe that's that's a, a holistic argument to say eh, maybe this movie's okay to exist but powell himself actually hates hates this movie understandably Um, right because it's not even actually interesting right like yeah it is actually kind of amazing this movie was effective in doing the that stated purpose because it's not fun to watch Powell Powell described this movie as uh an outrageous piece of propaganda full of half truths and half lies with some stagey episodes which were rather embarrassing and with actual facts which were highly distorted. Uh, that is that And is even his that quote. is kind of being pretty generous. Right. Like, honestly right. speaking, like, there are very few half-truths in this film. Yeah. There are a lot of outright lies about Britain's uh, uh, position at the start of the war. Absolutely. Uh, because it, it it essentially states that they already have a, enough airplanes in production to make this war last five minutes. Oh, no. They're <laughs> like, well, we, we learned in the last war that uh, ammunition can yeah. be a problem, so we now have enough ammunition to destroy <laughs> the planet. Or it's like, you know, it's not yeah. quite like that. But, like, it's like, um, all right. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. but that kind of tracks Things right. That because, were obviously not true. Right. But that but also but tracks, frankly right? though, that that one's interesting. It's it's not true. I don't know if it's a lie per se in the sense that um uh let's see here. Uh when when did when did France fall? When, did, when was the battle oh, of France? I don't. Concurrently? Well, but but production would have happened before this before the fall of France. Yeah. Right. The reason I bring that up is you know, I, I watched a fair number of World War II documentaries as a as a young man. I had the History Channel. That's essentially all the History Channel was when I when you and I were young. Um, and my understanding has always been that France was fairly convinced they could stop the Germans as well. Like a lot of people were under the impression that they were totally prepared yeah. to deal with right. this, and then were a little caught a little caught off guard. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me that like. Even in making the film, they'd be like, oh, yeah, the government assures us that we have plenty of ammunition to fight this war and have it be over in, in a day. Oh, yeah. This was this was prior to, to the fall of France. Right. This was made, it was released in November of 1939, and it was made over the course of eight weeks. Right, and France so, was invaded in yeah. May of the, started in 40. May of 1940. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 my, yeah. my point is just that, like, well, pro- well, not true. As it turns out, that that's more probably short sightedness than anything else. Yeah, uh, a fair bit of propaganda yeah. mixed with short sightedness, and be like, "Oh yeah, we can handle the Germans. It's fine." Where you're like, where where you're not convincing the the government that like Germany is an existential threat as much as you're trying to convince them that like, hey, let's just get in here, do this, and get it over with. Right. Right. And. And you know it's it's public facing, and and an interesting aspect of this is the one thing Britain had at the time to really brag about that would have absolutely placated uh, the majority of fears of the general public. They couldn't mention, right? Even at the time, right. uh, radar was still top secret, right? And no right. one was allowed to know that it existed, let alone talk about it openly, right? Exactly. Um. So. So yeah, like they've got to they've got to placate the public by telling them things that aren't true. Uh but but mostly because they can't tell the actual truth that might actually placate the public. Right, right. Not not that complete placation is really <laughs> what they need to be after anyway because Germany really I mean Germany did a number on mainland uh Britain, right? Right. <laughs> you know. Well, and, and uh, there was plenty Right. Plenty of stuff going on there, and it it really it's so. it, it's a matter of that, and then right you want to if your if your goal is to like, and then yeah if your goal is to sort of like really explain ideologically like this is why we have I mean they they go into the whole like the whole intro right. is essentially the the uh, thesis statement of the film being like right. hey these assholes are bad. They're doing all these things that we would never do, because uh, we're good people. We we don't. Right. <laughs> they literally make the statement we don't like. It's not exactly word for word, but it's essentially. I mean, we'd prefer not to kick their butts, but if we have at to, we of, will. At the end of the movie, um, we've gone all through this storyline with the RAF fighter, Mister Richardson, mm. um, and they've gone on this bombing run, and he's back. And taking the afternoon off, walking by the river with his wife, and his wife reminds him, she gives a stirring speech while he's half asleep because he's so tired from from his war efforts so far. Um, 
she delivers to no one in particular a stirring speech that says we need to fight for what we believe in truth and beauty and kindness and like god start to finish this is a very like it's it's a silly thing right like it is it's absolutely silly thing uh yeah no it, and it's really fascinating that it interrupts the creation of the thief of baghdad right like it is just right cuz they right. are they are to whatever extent that it is true, part of what Britain's actions in World War II have to be about is a ma- is a, a desire to maintain its colonial interests, right? Right. Um, we see that in the, the way that like the fighting happens in mainland Asia and things like that, right? Um, and that is true of other in North Africa, in Africa, yeah, yeah. in in Southeast <laughs> Asia, East, yeah, right. it, everywhere. And that is true for many of the of the of the um the um colonial powers right and it is it is interesting that the making of a movie justifying their participation in the war interrupts the making of a movie that as far as you and i have sort of talked about so far is a sort of i don't i still can't find a way to phrase it a movie menagerie of of colonial holdings of the british empire right like trying to like sort of like jazz up public interest in like we should we should hold on to these colonial holdings because look at look at the wonder and beauty of our colonial holdings. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it really is fascinating as a pair. So I'm glad Criterion put it put it on this DVD yeah. because it it just it frames it very interestingly. And had I seen. I never would have watched The Lion Has Wings no, in any no, other context. No, no, absolutely not. But had I seen it in any other context, I would certainly take different things away from it than seeing it paired on a, on a double feature like this. Right. Um, so it's a fascinating I mean, you would have taken some of the same stuff out of it because it. it's a crazy, silly right. garbage movie. But <laughs> right, like... Because it's a crazy, silly garbage <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, as a, as a pro-Air Force piece of propaganda... That's so weird. I don't... Yeah, specifically yeah. it being pro Air Force is a wild thing, right? Like it's just like yeah. you're yeah. like, well, we need to drum up support for making movies about the war, but also like we need people to really understand how cool these fucking airplanes are. In the olden days, we were the rulers of the sea, and now our boys take to the air is a pretty close paraphrase of something the movie. Oh, it's almost says. exactly what it says. Yeah, it's like. My, my, well, and and it and it's the end of a like it's a sort of like it's a whole bunch of parallelism where he's like, oh, we used to ride horses, and they show a bunch of Nazis riding horses, and then right. now we so ride they, tanks or whatever. Right. It's like right. this is just come on. The, the Nazis are also backwards and right yeah, because you also have to make sure that. Well, we talked about this with uh, like with with nationalism and and yeah. and. This sort of patriotism is a function of nationalism. Um, right. You get that, like, your enemy has to be both a bunch of backwards idiots and the most dangerous people on earth at the same time. Right. 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 They just have to. Well, be. in being backwards idiots, that's why they're so dangerous, right? But, right. But they also um, they possess both insanely high technological, like, weaponry, and also they look at these idiots. They still ride horses. And and planning acumen, too. Right. right. Yeah. Like, it's. They, it, the, the sort of got to worry about their tactics, but they are idiots. So, um, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's that it's that it's a classic uh, thing, right? 
if if only part of the British technological advantage was a six arm murder sex bot who could have taken out old Hitler. <laughs> right. Lure Hitler into uh, its its cold <laughs> mechanical death embrace. <laughs> yeah. And then stab it as slow as humanly possible. <laughs> it's like it is the right, like right. the log it's like is she gonna like I know it was for dramatic effect, but because of the way the movie is kind of paced, it feels very slow compared to the way the movie moves. So it's like, boy, this is taking a very long time. And and also because it's a five-minute dance sequence of a character who can't stand up. Right. Exactly. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, there are limitations to having three other people behind you, right? Um, right, right. But, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing, right? Like, it's, it's a dance sequence – his guards seem to be totally nonplussed by the entire experience. <laughs> There's literally one visible in that scene, which drove me right. kind of crazy. There's a guard standing like across the room out of focus, watching him be murdered yeah. by a sex bot. Yes. As soon as the Sultan dies, Jafar is just in power, even though this isn't even like their Sultan. Uh, Jafar is not the visor of the Sultan. Not the visor. Yeah. Not the visor of that Sultan. Right. And also, yeah. And even if he were not in the line of succession, as far as I can tell. <laughs> right. Uh, I, well, I guess by that point, maybe he's technically married to the princess. So maybe he is. I don't maybe, know. Anyway, but like she weird. ran away before the wedding. I don't know. Yeah, she ran away yeah. in like. Um, yeah, no, it's like. Oh, but man. but on the sex bot, getting back to the special effects in this Get, movie, getting back know, to we, sex. We've bots. talked about the. Blue, we've talked about the uh, the blue screen bit, and that's very fascinating. And there's a really great uh, sort of. Um, it's not an actual. Um, documentary on their process, but a like three minute video on uh, a recreation of the process that of how they did the blue oh, screen then. I didn't see that. Which is yeah, it's 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 really fascinating because it it involves essentially rerunning the film um through the film dryer like three different times, three different sets of film, one to black out the horse and then one to superimpose the horse onto the other screen and then one to put the horse back in right. onto that black space. Um, interesting. Very interesting. But an, but another thing this movie uses is uh, just a combination of pa- practical effects that are, um, you know, matte paintings for backgrounds. I mean, the matte paintings and, are gorgeous. Uh, I'm a I'm a big um, matte painting fan, and these are very very yeah. lovely. And there's there's also a thing they do called hanging miniature, which okay. is essentially a a model of the top part yep, of yep, the backdrop. Yep, yep. Really interesting technique, right? Where you hang the miniature over the backdrop and then it gives you a, a sense of depth and things like that. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And another thing, and they actually borrow that from the 1924 version as well. Well, I mean, it is a, it is a, there. it is a, um, a, a, a established filmmaking technique. Right. But yeah. And a very interesting thing that, that sort of allows them to do then uh, is that when the magic carpet is flying, they drop shadow onto right. the uh, the minuets of the of the buildings. Right, and they get, and it allows them to pass things through yeah. different layers of right. it and stuff. It's right. it's, it's a really very, neat technique. I mean, um, it's very fascinating, and I really think the the flying carpet here is just really great. Yeah. Um, to the point, 
one of the impetuses for the lion has wings was an RAF guy watching them uh, set up some of the flying carpet effects, and and he says, "Oh, you want to see some real flying?" And uh, <laughs> hey, Bob, it's very dumb. You want to see some very real dumb. flying? Uh, yeah, but uh, another aspect of uh, of the special effects here is that this is a very early Technicolor film, right? right? Um, in 1940, you know, we had, obviously there was other color stuff before this, but not a lot. Um, the Wizard of Oz even was, uh, the year before this, right? But, uh, the people, the Technicolor advisors, the Mm -hmm. people from the company on set here, didn't want them to do the blue screen because they thought it would make the color look bad and by its nature then make Technicolor as a technology look look bad. bad. And then it wouldn't catch on. Interesting. So it was still early enough in the existence of Technicolor. Like, oh man, we could that, we could fuck this up. People would just the, watch black and white forever. Right. The company was just scared that that would happen yeah. if the blue screening didn't work out. Um, so somehow somehow they convinced them to let them try it. And, 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 and it to be fair, I mean, <clears throat> to be fair to those those Technicolor workers. If you were to compare the Technicolor in this to the Technicolor in Wizard of Oz, yeah, this is not as good. Like, right. just just straight up, unavoidably, it is. It's good. It's really. It's pretty, but the colors are not up to par with the Wizard of Oz, which has kind of startling Technicolor. Like, is is right. and that's yeah. As part of that, that I feel is an interesting choice here too, because a lot like the blueness of the city of Baghdad in the background is this washed out pastel like storybook right. dream that I think works through the atmosphere of the film yes. very well. Um, I'm but f- you're right to say it's not as vibrant as other right. Technicolor films. I mean, you know, time. I mean, and and the problem is, is that right. you do get something like, for example, The Wizard of Oz to compare it to, and like the Emerald City and The Wizard of Oz is fucking <laughs> right. shocking, right. right? And that and that right. is a cartoon essentially. It is a yeah. But and and what I think might, I mean, other than the colors not being as vibrant. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the problem is the nature of Technicolor anyway, in my experience, has always been that it does produce sort of cartoony colors. Um, right. And and so, you know, something like Wizard of Oz embraces that and and runs with it and says, well, this is the kind of color we get out of this. This is this works here. This one wants to marry that sort of a uh, sort of washed out version of that cartoony color with foregrounds that are not cartoony in the same way. Right. And th- and right. that that slight dissonance there does make the foreground seem a little bit like for example right in the early part of the film where he's the the blind man preaching on the side of the street it, <laughs> there's a slight disconnect between that background the background which right. is lovely. It's beautifully painted. It is a lovely matte painting. It's very clearly a matte painting. It's very it is very cartoon storybooky, but then the foreground doesn't feel like that. The foreground feels like, even though I don't think it's shot on location or anything like that, feels like somebody wanted it to feel like it was like a, an actual street, which doesn't right. vibe well with a fairy, uh, a uh, fairy tale background perfectly. Right. Right. And while it's the same background characters in the scenes with our main character and 
this the crowd reaction shots right. a lot of those crowd reaction thoughts shots really feel like they could just be pulled from a documentary about they the middle do. east they do and, and right? yeah they do they um, they had a random people laughing right they, they do it's like wow we you guys found a lot of stock footage of yeah. uh, a day in the bazaar right, right? And, and, yeah. and even if they that's not what they are they that doesn't change the fact that that's what they feel like and it, part of it's because they're right. tight close ups right. which is like kind of awkward in this scenario where it's like why did you do right. it as a tight close up that like we have no context it feels for where like this it shot sitting. with a telephoto lens from right, right. Know, it's like a hundred well, yards away for some well, reason. I mean, yeah. Somebody shot this technicolor like anthropology documentary and we just crypted it out of that. Done. Right. Right. Um, another aspect of the technicolor people being reticent on the low is, you know, technicolor shoots on red, blue, green, yep, the, primary yeah. color filming. So to do the blue screen, you kind of just lose the entire blue spectrum, right? Right, because you lose the you lose the blue, you know. Well, and what they, which you is know, in, they they've got techniques to work around it, I'm sure, because you know they're going right. to like then relayer it back over and stuff because they have the, the right. background right. without that on there. But it, I'm I I'm sure that they were probably actually right. Like, I mean, I'm sure that they, that is part of why the colors are kind of weird in this movie. I'm sure yeah. that's part of why, like, in a, in overall sort of standpoint like as i talked about for example with the genie like some of the colors are just like what's happening here like what are we doing here um and i do think the the genie is another phenomenal use of of all those effects no the the effects are very Uh, cool by and large it's just like the makeup is like the makeup work is is a little not great uh, when it gets down to it and we do find that in other people who are painted head to toe like the 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 sex robot is painted head to toe Right. And the color's a bit, it's not like, would not be, and I'm sure it's just a function of the Technicolor not working the way it's supposed to, essentially, is an right. odd choice. It's like, that's not a color that anybody wants to look at. Yeah, and the uh, the green men in the um, in the air temple, right. you know, where he goes to get the, the seeing stone. Um, yeah, it's all, there's a lot of <laughs> silly get, get, get the things. spider and the spider. Yeah. The spider is also. The spider is great. The spider is awesome. Right? The spider, the spider is amazing, uh, and legitimately, like I could, I could see myself being scared of that. Oh as no! I as um, as a child, I would have been terrified. I am. Oh yeah. I feel like there should be warning. I I do not have arachnophobia, but right. I often feel like, man, this movie should come with like a special thing <laughs> right. where it's like this isn't just a spider being in the film it's like this is a spider is in the film and and such a such a weird self-defeating trap that that spider oh, exists no. in because below the spider web is a hole that leads directly to a giant Killer octopus, octopus? <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean so you if you manage to fall out of the spider web you're dead anyway not just from the fall but you also be at Right. Uh, but then, then we get. I really wish the movie had spent a little more time on a Harryhausen-style fight between the spider and the octopus. To be honest, yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah, but just Harryhausen get, get wasn't doing super slow, here, so. like uh, stop motioning, and that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean it's it's uh, it's the spider as as a practical effect is really neat. Like he's some pretty neat puppetry yeah. going on there, and. Uh, yeah, it's all. It's I mean, there's a lot of neat effects in this film. Um, 
it does feel like in a lot of ways like the film is in some ways just an excuse to show off all the cool effects they came up with. Right. Which is not, not a bad thing. Not to say. the extent of, say, maybe some of that Harryhausen work. Um, right, right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it is. It is. Uh, which is interesting because this wasn't like a movie designed to showcase this blue screen technique someone came up with. Like, right. Like the blue screen was developed for the movie, not the other way around. Right. So it's not a proof of concept or not designed to be a proof of concept in that regard. Right. Right. I think, so. I think it's one of those things though, like where like, I think it might to a certain extent be, be some George Lucasing, uh, where it's like, I, I had this idea and then I realized all this really cool shit I could do. Right. And and luckily will, it doesn't really get too out of hand in this film. It doesn't like take over the film, yeah. but it does give the film that feeling sometimes where you're like, well, we're just are we just doing this because we can? Yeah. To to bring this conversation then full circle, um, since we've been working our way back toward the beginning yeah. <laughs> anyway by talking about the effects again, I will say I am very impressed with their decision to position Abu as the liberator, the prophesied liberator descending from the clouds, um, who is at first described in very Western Jesus-like interpretations, right, of of a second coming. Um, But, but yeah, Ahmed, of course, gets the girl because he's the white guy. He's got to get the girl. But Abu also gets what he wants in the end, right? right? He doesn't... I mean, there is, that, freedom, there is that there is that there's always and he goes a, on his adventure. There always is that weird like this is like have you ever eaten a uh dessert that has a little bit too much lard in it and it leaves that film on your tongue? <laughs> um yes. And the, I bring that up because yeah, he does, but they can't let it just be like how do I explain this? This is this, this movie um it can't Apu just be that he just I leaves. I think is what you're getting into. Yes, he can't yeah. just leave because he's his own man and he just needs to, this is what he wants to do. He sneaks away because he's being threatened with school, which has that just yes. just we just eke back into that noble savage. We just need we just need to like just gonna right. just gonna just right. gonna get it right back in there. We just gotta just gonna make sure that everybody knows that he doesn't want to fucking learn anything, despite yeah. being. A dude who just flew a flying carpet and shot people with super arrows. We got to make sure that we all know that he's still just a childish person. And that childishness, while in this case is both his age and his attitude, the age thing is probably irrelevant to that interpretation of his behavior. Yeah. It, it and it and it does it has this weird roll on rolling on effect of like oh these you know people in this place do things like piracy because they're just they're uneducated. Yeah. They're childish. They're uneducated. You get this sort of like you can't it just can't let well enough alone right. and be like oh he doesn't want to be the vizier. Like he right. could just be like right. oh actually sir no, yeah. I'm gonna go off and explore the world. Like he could just, 
he doesn't have right. to sneak and away when he's threatened with a school, is what I'm saying. And not this is not the only time he's infantilized, but he is throughout the film right. as being right. this sort of like haphazard do-gooder who is like yeah and like that character archetype is already not one i like in general in films but then when you apply it to a person who is a victim of your colonialization efforts it like it gets it gets weirder and more uncomfortable and then the guy the other character in the film is because of i guess because of technicolor the whitest human being on the planet um like a vampire um literally he's literally at times the film can't find definition in his skin so he is just a right. white right. figure with it's zero very, definition it's so weird it, it's just a function of the um, it's just a function of of yeah a lot of you know they get into that thing with the polaroid um color spectrum that they used for like skin tones right, right? especially early on i'm sure that the people who designed uh, Technicolor. Number one, it probably didn't have as wide of a range of color spectrum as it as they would have liked it to have anyway. But they probably built it around testing it on white dudes, and then they wanted to show people who weren't white. And then it's like, well, it fucked up the whole white balance. We have no idea what's yeah. going on anymore. Um, it's not an excuse so much as probably what happened. Um, but either way, it is. Um, he's like the king again at the end. And I will, yeah, I will say to Moore's colonial interpretation of this, the idea that at the end our white king tries to impose education and civilization onto Abu, and he rejects it for self determination, is good. Yeah, I uh, mean, yeah, but uh, in that very narrow reading of what's going on there, right? Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, it is definitely an interpretation that one could have, and one can have. Alternatively, though, because this is apparently what we do on this podcast, <laughs> um, the alternative Why of that is we? he doesn't reject it for self-determination, but rejects it for ignorance. Because specifically, like, I, the reason I say that is because then you fit firmly into because he a, is Because he is infantilized, yes. Right, and so... What you're left with is the reality of the matter. What you're left with is the colonialist perspective on his, on those who he colonizes as being. We just keep trying to give them wisdom, and then they keep trying to shoot us all the time. Right. That that sort of like we tried to help you, and you slapped our hand away. They keep rejecting civilization. Right. Because when really you assume that you to. are civilization. And then somebody doesn't right. want you. They are by nature of rejecting you, rejecting the concept of being civilized. Right. Which and, is what and also by is its, happening. By the nature of what's happening there, Abu is not just rejecting the education. He is rejecting community. Yeah, right? he's rejecting. He's going off yeah. to be yeah. himself, his lonely, his, his uh, isolated well, self. Well, he's going to go off to essentially self. basically kind of be a pirate. I mean, there's all kinds right. of this like layer upon layer. And if he wants to be a sailor, there is a community there, right? right. Um, and they have that throw a line to sin, way line to Sinbad, so it suggests a, a well-crafted ship. But, but if he goes to be... You know Sinbad's first mate. I think in the tales of Sinbad, that's a death sentence. So, <laughs> right, also true. Um, 
Uh, which yeah. maybe they were like sequel time, and then you know, um, but but no, like I don't I don't know if that's how people thought in 1940, honestly. But like he actually plays the Aladdin character in a uh, movie called Arabian Nights um, oh, okay. a few years later. Um, yeah. Ali Ben Ali. Yeah, I mean um, it's just yeah. I, I mean I I really want to buy into something like Moore's like anti-colonial messaging. Uh-huh. Right. But like this is Britain in 1940. It's not. It, it's it just can't, not that. I mean like it could be. It could be the most revolutionary thing in the world, but at that point you're going to have to you would they would have to be wearing it on their sleeve and there's no way in shit it would get made. Right. There's also there's also commentary on this movie of casting uh Viet as the bad guy is some allusion to a vaguely German villain that gets a, a, a Nazism angle in here, but that's also yeah. immediately complicated by the fact that Conrad Veet was uh, incredibly popular with the ladies at the time. Right, right, well, exactly. A, a beautiful man, and mothers <laughs> yeah. certainly went to see this movie to fantasize about Conrad Veet. Yeah. And and on top of that, his evil isn't Well, he's actually It's a chaste evil too. Right. Right. He even rejects I, I really as a villain I found him very interesting. Because he yeah. even rejects the idea of using his power to overtly essentially commit sexual assault. Or rape, right? right? He's like, right. he says, no, I want actual love from you. I'm yeah. going to trick you into it a bunch of times. <laughs> sort of. It's still really weird and bad. He implicitly and explicitly denies himself right. opportunities to assault right. her. Right, and I right. think that some of that, I mean, obviously there's, there's a whole ethics thing going on here too, but like right. some of that comes from the movie also wanting him to be a villain that people could watch, for example, for as a popular actor. Yeah. You could watch him and be like, oh, I don't hate him. He's the bad guy, but I don't like I don't want him to like they I think they kind of want that sort of villain that people can be like, oh, he's just a he's just a bad boy kind of thing, you know, instead yeah. of it being like, oh, this guy's evil and a Hitler stand in. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, um, and, and I think they're fairly successful with that in the sense that like, he's bad, but he's bad in a sort of like, um, he keep, he's like laying these plans and stuff and he's very clever and he, and he gets his way through deception, but like, you don't, I don't know. And he does murder a king. He does, but like, I mean, come on, that king. And tries to murder our main character. Well, right, but, but that's expected from a villain and protagonist relationship, right? right? Like they do, right, they have right. a villain and protagonist relationship. But I think his his behavior towards the princess is very explicitly meant to be not too upsetting to the audience. Yes, and 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 I think that's you know, but like that that produces a story wherein he, yeah, he doesn't like just commit a sex crime in the film. Right, like, right, right. Yeah, to to maybe get back to Moore's proletarian uh, <laughs> king, uh, democratic monarchy, it is also true that that king 
essentially hoists himself by his own petard in being so obsessed with toys as opposed to governance. Right. I mean, that, uh, yeah, they do set him up as he a embraces bad the sex king. bot, right? Like, yeah. your audience is going to read, oh, I wish yeah. I could command And my he's already sold like, his daughter right. for, for a television set. Right. So. right. Exactly. He's sold his daughter for a television set. He he is he is on record throughout his introduction talking about how much his subject. No, he sells suck. his daughter for the horse. I'm sorry, I, he shows he, he shows, shows Jafar the television set, set and, and, good. and then sells. But his it's the same the basic horse. effect. It is. Right. Yeah. He sold his daughter for a toy. Uh, yeah. It is a flying horse toy, but nonetheless, it's a pretty fancy toy. It is a fancy honest, toy. He sold. He didn't just sell his daughter for a normal car. He sold his daughter for like a supercar. Yeah. What I'm saying is, is that um, he's he's very much telegraphed as a bad king, right? Like he's he is the right. the ideal of what a bad monarch is, right? Like he he like <laughs> right. he complains about his subjects relentlessly and how they like don't like him enough and are like don't listen to him, but he just sits in his high tower playing with his weird toys. They just want food and yeah safety right well exactly and 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 so and so that's all part of making jafar like a villain that like right people at home could be like yeah, yeah i'm not I'd, I'd fuck him right 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 he's a villain who gets rid of a bad king exactly it's so like, like and yeah he has a aggressive relationship with the main character but that again is a very normal plot thing where no one reads yeah. into that that's like yeah of course he does and the and the other disconnected king learns his lesson through the machinations of Jafar. Right. Um, so, like, like, and presumably in marrying the the princess becomes the ruler of both cities. So there we go. Jafar actually created uh, a stable, a net, uh, uh, some sort of stable democratic stability in, uh, in right, this region. Right. Yeah, I, I yeah, there should go, have been a scene at the end Jafar. where Jafar's like, like flying away in a club, like my work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> and he like looks at yes. the camera and winks. Yes, uh, so great, so great. Uh, another uh, interesting detail on this movie: uh, our princess is played by. Um... Oh goodness, I'm sorry. Our princess is played by. Uh, June Dupree, uh, she was not the original choice. Uh, and in fact, another actress was hired. Vivian Lee was hired oh. to play the princess here. Okay. Uh, and uh, before production started, was cast as Scarlett O'Hara and was like, screw you guys. I'm going gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to wear a curtain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll catch you suckers uh, later. I have a curtain to so wear. Very, it's a very complicated year in film. Yeah, no is kidding, what, huh? Is what's going on here, right? Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Berger, the uh, original director, they had a lot of creative differences with, including he wanted to use a specific um, composer, and Corda wanted to go with the guy who they actually went with. Um, he wanted to make this film black and white, and Corda was pretty insistent on it being a colored movie. Right, that seems like, I guess uh, that would be a deal breaker, yeah. right? To the point, yeah, to the point where it's not really surprising that Berger was kind of pushed out of the way. Right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So to the point where Criterion, you know, Criterion lists this movie under three different directors' names, 
But then there's at least three other people yeah. we named. Yeah, the the the, <laughs> who directed the, the Wikipedia this, begs right. to differ. There's like seven names right. on this list. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah, it's uh, it's a. There's a lot of very fun things going on here. It is not a very deep movie, and if you think too much about it, it gets bad very fast. Right. I mean, but is it something that like, I mean. Again, you get into questions about whether or not it's appropriate to show your children just because of, like, certain right. messages that are inherent to these kind of films. But, like, you know, it's fun. It's I, I, I enjoy the scenes with the genie quite a bit, despite the bad makeup, because the acting is so much fun with this. Just, oh, just, yeah. It's so sort of, uh, like, I'm trying to think of the word, like, uh, exuberant and stuff. It's really, it, it's all very interesting. Um, Rex Ingram is legitimately interesting in his portrayal yeah. here. Um, I don't think, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it, yeah it, it, it really, then you, yeah, it's, he's quite interesting. There's a, a lot of, there's a lot of interesting acting choices in this film. Um, I will say our main character, what's his name? The actual, like, um, actor. Ahmed is the character name, the actor's name, and I will forgive you for not knowing it. It is John Justin and he was an unknown before this. And probably continues and to be after. Don't think he did a lot. After. Well, he, He's he was films. in a good number of films. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's, uh, this didn't exactly catapult him. I don't right. Think. I mean, so, and that's not, su- his acting's a little stiff in this movie. It's really, he's, he kind of stands out. By the fact that he is not that interesting of a screen presence compared to nearly everybody yeah. else he's on screen with, and right. I think that that's kind of unfortunate because it's just like, oh, our main king right. is like the least interesting person on this in this movie. He yeah he exists to perform a narrative function to keep this closer to the Douglas Fairbanks nineteen twenty four right. film, um, but. Court is out here, you know, making a movie with his friends and people he's worked with already, right? You know, so Sabu's in it, and Sabu's being positioned as Corda's little star, which maybe in its own way has weird colonial oh, yeah, for sure. underpinnings Definitely. to it, too. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, yeah, John Justin is, like, it's, like it's even a throwaway placeholder name, right? Right. <laughs> it's like, like who are you? What are you? Yeah. Um, might as well be a baby, uh, a, a robot, right? Himself. Um, but yeah, uh, he had a he had a pretty decent career. You know, he's. Uh, uh, I mean, he was in he was in a, a nineteen seventy eight uh, movie that based on Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, called The yeah. Big Sleep. There you go. A seventy eight Big Sleep. That seems. Either too early or too late. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like wasn't wasn't there a pretty famous like fifties version? Oh yeah, Sleep for sure. With Bogart, there is definitely a black and white The Big Sleep. <laughs> yeah, nineteen forty six. Um, Howard Hawks directed. So, um, so yeah, that one. <laughs> Justin, 
John Ju- John Justin is not in the big sleep you're thinking of when you say the word. The well, big no, sleep yeah, together. I know because so. I was looking at the Wikipedia page. Yeah. But I I brought right. it up because it's like he's in a lot of those yeah. kind of roles. Like looking at his filmography right. is a lot of like, oh, oh no, this is not what you're thinking of. <laughs> um. He doesn't play. He doesn't play Marlowe in that version of the Big Sleep. Oh either. my God! So wow. Not... Well, this is getting very low tier here. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just saying. He's not. He's not even. He's not even the big name. Right. In right. this probably made for television version. I think of the so. Big I'm get... Oh yeah. No. It's, does it even say? It, does it? Say, oh, it doesn't say TV movie. The, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, he had a career, but it's it's a pretty low key one, and and it shows because yeah. I mean, like, again, like his acting is a little wooden. It's a little like kind of uninteresting compared to literally everybody else on screen, and I'm including sex robots. Oh, interesting. Robert Mitchum is is Marlowe in that version of the Big Sleep. <laughs> huh. well, there you go. Fascinating. I wonder how many anyway. versions. Of, I wonder how many. Is there only two versions of uh, Big Sleep? I, I, listen, it it's probably one of Chandler's more more famous works. So I but certainly figure. the Bogart film is a definitive version. Well, that, of that's it, the I issue, right? Say. Is that when you're so, faced with like, like that, it's like, well, <laughs> we cannot do better than this. Why are we hey, trying? Listen, plenty. Plenty of people try that sort of thing, True. though. Like uh, speaking of our uh, our Michael Powell director here, uh, what is it? FX doing a version of Black Narcissus? Oh yeah, for yeah, I heard about currently. that. Yeah. <laughs> that Seems that is... like a fool's errand, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does, Pat. It sure does. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, we could probably pull this yeah. one to a close. We've been talking about the Thief of Baghdad. It's uh like I said, it is a fantastically innovative film, um, but it's still it's a it might as well be Shazam. It's a kids' genie movie. Yeah, is what it is. Yeah, I mean, there's no it's, basketball people, but otherwise, yeah. Which is unfortunate because that was a real pinnacle of '90s special effects. Too, yeah, yeah, it making, was <laughs> making the villain into a basketball. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that also happens in. Uh... In Space Jam, too, doesn't it? Oh, it almost certainly happens in Space Jam. Huh. I wonder I how often that happens in 90s film. I don't see how it could not happen in Space Jam. I kind of wonder <laughs> how often that happens in 90s film. I want, somebody needs to do an exhaustive list of all the time villains are turned into basketballs. It was a it was a very early DreamWorks innovation. One of the first things they did was create a mechanism for turning uh, <laughs> an animated character into a ball. Yeah. And they... <laughs> It's, uh, it was very they important. They sold that algorithm around to finance ants. <laughs> before you knew it, every and, uh, <laughs> before you knew it, everybody was turned into a basketball except for Woody Allen. So this week we have been talking about the Thief of Baghdad from 1940, a uh, a beautiful movie. Uh, next week we will be talking about oh, just oh, aren't God, we so just, excited for next week? I'm going to go lay down. I don't. <laughs> next week we are talking about Paul Schrader's 1985 biography of the man who. Uh, was the biggest force for Japanese nationalism in the latter half of the 20th century. Uh, well, Mishima. certainly the biggest artistic force, right? But yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Uh, again, from 1985. Look forward to that next week. We don't actually look forward to that. God, I don't I look, say those words. Um, I look but, forward uh, only but we to will escaping be talking about from it its next orbit. Week. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, and then uh, we actually follow that up with one of Mishima's, uh, his only directorial himself, a, a oh, movie called Patriotism that God, we'll be talking about in I a couple of weeks. Yes, yeah, but I dread it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. anyway, thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.